Well, as we begin Genesis chapter 3 this morning in our series from the book of Genesis, we're still in the creation era. Remember that chapters 2 and 3 go together. They fit very tightly together. They're one tight literary unit, which I have split into two sermons because there's just too much to cover in one sermon. And once you, once you start a habit like that, it's easy to continue it. So I'm splitting chapter 3 into two sermons as well because, again, there's just too much to cover in one sermon. But you need to remember that they all go together. Uh, and that means that the context of chapter 3, the first 13 verses we're going to look at this morning, is the garden. It is the paradise that we talked about last week in chapter 2. Here in Genesis 3, we'll, we'll hear a direct attack on God's words. We've known nothing but God's good word and powerful word and creating word and loving word up till now, but now we're going to hear direct attacks on God's words, blasphemies against God, which are a direct attack on the goodness of God himself. Believers and unbelievers here this morning, Genesis 3 is foundational to your understanding of everything. We must understand these verses in order to be able to rightly see the world in which we now live, which is not paradise. We need to understand these verses in order to be able to rightly see ourselves as sinners in relation to God. And we need to understand these verses in order to be able to gain and maintain a right understanding of who God is, which serves everybody well. Unbelievers need this understanding to see that you need a Savior. You need to see that what you call life is not authentic life, as intended by God, but that real life is available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to understand these verses will help you to understand that. And believers... Need this understanding to deepen your relationship with your Savior. You need to know the depths from which you've been saved from and to grow in right worship of God, to understand the grace of God and, and what He has done. Your Father. So let me read this morning Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. I'm actually going to pick up the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25, as I read. This is the Word of God. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God. Genesis 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, and then he goes on to tell us about God's creation of the earthly realm. We're not told about God's creation of the heavenly realms, how he formed it and how he filled it with heavenly beings. We get a few hints about a fallen angel in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. It seems that God had created a beautiful angel who believed himself wise enough to rule in God's place, and he tried to do so. Jesus briefly mentions in Luke chapter 10 verse 18 the fate of this angel and those who followed him. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's little else in Scripture about the event. But we know that this snake in the garden is Satan. We learn in Revelation 12 verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And again in Revelation chapter 20 verse 2, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and threw him into the pit. Scripture calls him a liar, the deceiver, the accuser. And here, Satan, in the form of a serpent, is referred to in two ways. One, he's a created being. You always want to remember that, right? The, The great cosmic battle taking place is not yin and yang. It is not God is equally good as Satan is equally evil, and we're not sure what the outcome is going to be. That's not right. We know what the outcome will be. We know where God is, and we know that Satan is merely a created being. Two, he's described as more crafty. More crafty. Before he opens his mouth to talk, crafty isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's kind of how Jesus says we need to be sort of crafty and shrewd and smart in this world. Same words. It's wise and shrewd, but as soon as this serpent speaks words, we see his evil and how his words are lies against God's truth. So his craftiness in this context is evil. Satan has an agenda. He wants to ruin the image of God in the garden. He wants the man to know he's naked and to experience shame instead of innocence before God. He's here with a purpose. Since Genesis chapter 1, we've seen the power of God's word. God's word has produced all of the very goodness that Adam is enjoying, living and breathing before God with Eve. And Adam and Eve are called to worship God by serving and obeying God's word. Here's, Here's what you're to do. Enjoy the goodness. 
be at, with God in his rest, in his garden, worshiping him. Now, the tree of life we talked about last week stands as an emblem of God's word in the midst of the garden. It's an emblem that reminds Adam and Eve that life comes from God. It beckons Adam and Eve to come to God for life. Come, eat, have life in his garden. And it's promising more life, increasing life, forever life, life that can't be lost as they go about walking with God. All of paradise stands as evidence of the truth of goodness of God's word. Adam and Eve don't know anything but the goodness of God's word. And then the snake engages Eve with his words. You see the clash. And it's a dangerous dialogue. Let's look at the back and forth. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if I'd have read that maybe a little differently on the surface, it doesn't sound like such a terrible question. The poor, poor snake just needs a little clarification. That's Satan's cunning, hiding what he's doing. There are several subtle clues in the serpent's words to Eve. The serpent asks Eve what God, remember, God, Elohim, the creator God, the powerful God, said. He drops the Lord from the Lord God. He drops Yahweh, the personal name of God, which, is, which has been what God's been called throughout chapter 2 into chapter 3. In chapter 2, it was the Lord God, Yahweh, who formed man and breathed life into him. It was Yahweh who made woman and presented her to Adam, and they entered into a one-flesh relationship with one another in the presence of God. It was God who placed them in paradise, the, the Lord God who placed them in paradise and created them innocent, naked, and not ashamed. Yahweh is God's personal covenant-keeping name, and Satan keeps that word out of it. He doesn't want Eve to think about God in those terms, but rather in remote and distance terms. That deception is present in our temptation too. When we think of God as remote and distant, we're open to listening to other words. And if that doesn't seem like a big deal, notice that when Eve answers Satan, she answers with God and not Lord God. She follows his lead. She falls into his conversational pattern for the whole conversation as if she's not even talking about Yahweh who has a personal relationship with her. Satan's question is subtle, but it's devious at its foundation. Did God actually say? Notice what Satan's doing. He invites Eve to evaluate God's word. He invites Eve to evaluate God's word. That opportunity had never presented itself before. God's word was God's word. Hey, Eve, you decide what God said. Did God actually say? And just like that, Satan invites Eve to sit in judgment of God's word. And it was pretty enticing because she picks up the conversation. You know, right there she could have said, Adam, there's a talking snake in the garden. 
But she takes up the dangerous dialogue. Look at the content of Satan's question now. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Whoa! That's a complete distortion of God's word. That is not what he said. What did God say in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17? The Lord God commended the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God is unbelievably generous to Adam and Eve in his garden. But Satan implies God is not generous. He's stingy. Satan's words have distorted God's words and perverted God's generosity. The deceiver's so subtle, just as he is with us. Eve has no idea that the word of God is under attack. But the devil has already placed a seed of doubt in her heart that will bear immediate fruit. We don't even have to wait. Listen to Eve's response. God, again, not Yahweh, but Elohim. God, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve takes the opportunity to set the serpent straight, but she fails terribly. It's a miserable attempt. Kent Hughes says it this way. She descended to her own revisions of God's word in three sad instances in which she first diminished God's word, then added to God's word, then softened God's word. Look at what she does. God commanded her to eat of every tree of the garden, but she drops the word every diminishing God's generosity. She doesn't state that God gave them this fruit. She just says, yeah, we can eat of the fruit. She doesn't even acknowledge that it's God who gave it to them, as if it was just there and not from the hand of God at all. She was commissioned to obey God's word and therefore repeat accurately God's true word, but she's already leaning towards the devil's distorted words. See, something's already happening in Eve's heart. Just as it does in our hearts when we leave off some of the truth of God's word. Has God given you life? Yes, I have life. Oh. Oh, what a diminishing of God's word. We get ho-hum about the truth. And then we'll use God's word carelessly. What else does she do in her conversation with the devil? God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Where did that come from? Did God say don't touch? No. Eve added that. Eve sounds like the first Pharisee, doesn't she? God said don't eat. We say don't even touch. Here's what I think Eve is doing, perhaps without even realizing it. She's overstating God's strictness. You and I do that. She's overstating God's strictness, God's rules. You shall not eat of that tree. You can't even touch it, are so strict. Oh, he's so overbearing. 
He's so restrictive. His prohibitions are so terrible. It, it lays the groundwork, you see, for us to complain about God's expectation of obedience. He's, he's, just, he's just so demanding. Do you see how she's laying the groundwork? God's so strict. You can eat of everything. She says, he's so strict. God's commands, for example, to not murder. Think of that. Think of this expectation God has for us to obey his commands. Commands like, don't murder, or commit adultery, or lie. I mean, yeah, I'm so sad we have to follow those commands, right? Because we'd rather have all those things happening all around us, and happening to us. Oh my goodness, we have to follow God's commands. Like, not to kill, and not to lie, and not commit murder. That's right, because God's good. Because God's good. God's command not to eat the fruit because it'll kill you is a good command. It's easy to miss, but it's unmistakable that Eve softens God's word when she says, lest you die. Leaving out the word, surely. She removes the certainty of death for violating God's prohibition. In essence, Eve is saying, well, maybe, just maybe you, you won't die. Well, not sure, but maybe not. The same way we, we talk about our sin as not being that bad, right? Surely God wouldn't judge me for that. Surely there's no judgment of death for me. It's not that bad. It's a dangerous dialogue that Eve is having with the serpent. And having listened to his words, she quickly, unthinkingly, in one sentence, diminishes, adds to, and softens God's good word. Without God's true word, she's completely vulnerable to her crafty enemy. And her heart is already in tacit agreement with Satan's lies. Satan sees his opening and he pounces. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now Satan fully denies God's word and offers his own in its place. First he says God's word is a lie. You will not die. You will surely not die. Satan says there is no divine judgment, Eve. It's all a ruse to keep you subservient. God's word will not judge you. In fact, you get to judge God's word. You can take it or leave it, and God won't do anything about it. Isn't that what sinners think? Isn't that what we think when we sin? That is the lie that the whole world believes. That is the lie we believe when we sin against God. And then he says, not only will you not die, but actually something amazing will happen. Something that God knows will happen, but doesn't want you to know. Your eyes will be opened. Okay, that's knowledge language, right? You will see means you will know. When you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will know. And you will experience good and evil. 
then you'll be like God. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Aren't Adam and Eve already like God? Isn't that what we've learned in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis? Hasn't God created man in his own image, male and female? Hasn't Yahweh carefully formed the man and made the woman after his own likeness and placed them in paradise? Hasn't God planted his garden, his holy place, and positioned Adam and Eve in it for the purpose that they might represent God in his temple? Nothing in all creation is more like God than Adam and Eve. He created them like God for the purpose of his glory. Here's Satan's tempting lie. Not that you will be like God, because Adam and Eve are already like God. They're as like God as any created thing will ever be. What Satan is craftily enticing them to believe is that they can be God. They can be their own gods. But of course, Satan himself knows that's not possible. He's a liar and a deceiver. He tried it himself and found himself judged by the word of God. No living creature can replace the creator. You get the distinction, right? There is only one creator. None of the creatures can replace him. They were created by him. Certainly not this serpent, and certainly not Adam or Eve. Which leaves only one alternative, okay, that Satan is offering, and it's it's to rebel against God. They can't be more like God, they can't be God, but they can rebel against him. It's the middle land. To commit treason against Yahweh. To choose not to obey God and not to serve God. Rather, to choose to serve yourself by following the words of the serpent. To reject the tree of life and partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the offer. It's not what Eve thinks she's getting. But that's the offer. Now, I want to say, I want to say a few words about this two-tree test. Let me just ask you, with what we've read this morning, do you see the tree of life anywhere? Where is the tree of life? What happened to the tree of life? This is a two-tree test. God placed two trees in the midst of the garden. And there is no question that God put two trees in the garden to constitute a test. Will man serve God and obey God's word or will he not? Let me just say it again. There's no question that God put the two trees in the garden to constitute a test. Will man serve and obey God and obey his word or will he not? Will man bear God's image and have dominion by God's authority or not? It's a two-tree test. The tree of life is surrounded by life. The tree of life is surrounded by everything beautiful and bountiful. The tree of life symbolizes Adam and Eve's living in paradise in the presence of God, in God's perfect rest and in perfect relationship with one another and with Yahweh, unashamed. You, see, you and I, we can, we can at best imagine with our sanctified imaginations what that's like. They lived it. 
The tree of life is emblematic of the truth that life comes from God, that God beckons man to come take, eat, and have life from God, and that life with God will only get better and better. The tree of life is Adam and Eve's complete experience of the goodness of God expressed in his true word. The tree of life is surrounded by life. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil surrounded by? Lies. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is surrounded by lies. Satan lies when he tells Eve that the fruit of the tree is desirable to make one wise. And Satan lies when he characterizes God as stingy and resentful, even jealous and not good. How does Satan make God appear not good to be not for them, because we said God's for them? Well, he turns the two-tree test into a one-tree test. My goodness, the last thing he wants them seeing is the tree of life. He says, don't hold your breath waiting for God to make you wise. He doesn't want to make you wise. But this fruit, this fruit right here, that will make you wise. And Satan knows it's a lie. Satan knows it's a lie. Here, it's magical fruit. It does something magic. Makes you wise. You see, only God is infinite and has the capacity to know all things at once. We don't. And yet, in verse 22 here of chapter 3, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So in some way, in some way, the fruit has had an effect. In what way has man come to know good and evil? Do Adam and Eve gain the wisdom of God as a result of eating the fruit? No. No. They only gain the knowledge that they're naked. Verse 10. What about their children? What about the race of man? Does the race of man gain the knowledge of all good and evil? No. When we look ahead to chapter 6, verse 5, we read, The Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Continually. Wow, that's a bad bargain. What Adam and Eve got was the knowledge of experiencing evil. Their experiential knowledge of evil. You see, the two-tree test is first, live life, the authentic life for which you were created, the good and shame-free life based on God's word, or live life apart from God's word, which is a fallen life, a life apart from God's word, apart from God's goodness, and evil in relation to God. You see, the test was not whether the fruit was magical and could make Eve like God, the test was whether Adam would choose the wisdom of God or choose to live according to his own wisdom. Which are you going to do, Adam? To sit in judgment of God's proven word and instead use his own knowledge to determine what is good and evil? I'll be autonomous. I'll decide. I'll live according to my own ordinances and in my own word. 
Here's my point. Evil is not evil in and of itself. Evil is evil in relation to God. Lying is not evil in and of itself. Lying is evil because God's word in creation is always true. Lying is evil because it violates God's ninth commandment. Adultery is not evil in and of itself. Adultery is evil because it is evil in relation to God's creation ordinances of the one flesh marriage relationship. That's why it's evil. In relation to God, this is evil. Adultery is evil because it violates God's seventh commandment. When an 18-year-old walks to a school into a school in Texas and kills children, and people say it's an act of evil, they are right. But it's not evil in and of itself. It's not evil because they said it's evil. It's not arbitrarily evil because they don't know how else to explain it. It's evil in relation to the sanctity of life and God's creation ordinances. It's evil because it violates God's sixth commandment. Because God created everything, and because God's the giver of life, everything exists in relation to one thing, God. All of life is lived in relation to God. Everything is theological. To miss This is to miss everything. You may think you don't see the tree of life, but it's there. It's just beyond your horizon. You may think God doesn't exist, but he's there. And you will find out when you hit your time horizon. Everything exists in relation to the Creator. Adam and Eve will live either eating of the tree of life or having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a two-tree test. It's not a one-tree test. And as a two-tree test, the choice is obvious. Choose the tree of life and let God be God. The crafty serpent makes it appear to be a one-tree test, changing the perspective such that Eve will say, why can't I have that? Satan uses the same strategy today. You know it. I know it. Don't look at that over there. Don't pay any attention to that man behind the curtain. Right? Just look right here. I want to make a deal with you. I want to show you something. It's enticing. We fall into temptation the same way today. God, Satan twists God's word. If there's anything that stands out any more than people's theological confusion, I don't know what it is. Talk to anybody today about anything spiritual, because they'll talk about things that are spiritual. They're, they're utterly confused theologically. He flatters us to think that we're wise enough to sit in judgment of the true word of God. God, just just go ahead and pick whatever God off the shelf that you want. You're smart enough to do that. You'll pick the right one. He puts his lies before us like it's magical fruit, and we're so impressed. 
Magical fruit that will make us think that we're wise to discern what's good for us. And then we'll lie and commit adultery and commit murder and be unsatisfied with any amount of goods and services. (laughs) What a bad bargain. It's all lies and sleight of hand to keep us from seeing the tree of life. And it leads to a disastrous fall. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's almost as if the certain kind of slithers away, right? And, and all, all we have is Eve's thoughts in our frame of reference. These, you, and, and Eve plays this game. Do you know this icebreaker game? What is it? It's, it's two truths and a lie? Right? Hey, let's get to know one another. Tell me two truths and one lie about yourself. And we'll try to guess the lie. Well, that's what, that's what Eve's playing here in her mind. She's playing two truths and a lie. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she thinks, is a delight to the eyes. True. God created all the trees of the garden to be pleasant to the sight. It's true. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food. God created all the trees of the garden to be good for food. It's true. They just weren't supposed to eat this one. Because it would kill them. Now, don't get the wrong idea. It's not that God has a tree and Satan has a tree, okay? It's not like the tree of life is this big, beautiful tree filled with oranges, and, uh, and you know, Satan's tree is just, it's, it's, it's just black and there's no leaves and it's a little scraggly thing. You know, it's not that there is a God tree and a Satan tree. That's not right. They're both God's trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil both represent something that is true about God and his totality. One of them is not meant for man, and God is good to prohibit them by his word to not eat of it. But he believes the lie that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will make you wise. There's the lie. And she takes and she eats against the word of God. But that's not all she does. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, that's a shocker. That's a shocker. Adam was there with Eve and the serpent the whole time. We know this because each time that Satan addressed Eve, he addressed her with a plural you, not a singular you. Adam, God's vice regent, ruling over the garden, is passively watching and listening to the whole dangerous dialogue. Here's an even bigger shocker. Unlike Eve, Adam was not deceived by Satan's lies. Did you get that? Adam is not deceived by Satan's lies. In verse 13, Eve admits that she was deceived, but Adam was not. And still, he took and ate. 
The New Testament confirms this. I'll just pick one place. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. Adam was not deceived. Adam had exercised his ability, remember, to, to discern and name the animals. I mean, he's had some mental practice. He's had some moral practice. He's got some insights. He knows how to think and understand and discern. Adam was not ignorant of the covenantal promises as when he committed his life to his wife. Remember, Adam was not ignorant of the blessing of God by which he and Eve were naked and not ashamed in the presence of paradise. Adam was not unconvinced of God's goodness or God's care for him or for the entire creation. He was not deceived in any of those ways and so Adam sinned willfully. Adam was filled with sinful self-interest when he took the fruit and ate it. He watched Eve take the fruit first. Nothing happened to her. And so he took and ate. Kent Hughes says everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve. And no one followed God. And so from the pinnacle of God's paradise, from the pinnacle of innocence before God, from the pinnacle of intimacy with God, Adam and Eve fell. This original sin is the source of every problem that has ever existed in the world. The source of every problem that you and I face today has its source in Adam's sin against God. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Innocence is lost. And Adam and Eve scrambled to cover themselves and to cover their shame before one another and before God. But, but what about death? But what about death? Was God right that they would surely die? Or was Satan right that they would not surely die? Because the story goes on with Adam and Eve in it. They did not physically die that day. Which is probably what they were expecting. But they did die. They died spiritually. Their innocence before God died. They were no longer obedient servants but transgressors their constant, uninterrupted communion with God. And his presence in his rest died. Their rest with God in the garden died. They'd be banished from God's presence. And their experience of only God's good died. From now on, they would also experience sin from their own unwise choices. Everything that came easy before Oh man, it was easy to love one another. It was easy to love God. You have to try or put forth any effort. You know, serving God was just so easy. Everything would become difficult and burdensome from now on. Their access to the tree of life would end because they had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Dying they shall die. In time... Yes, 
a little over 900 years for Adam, they would physically die. See, Adam, by his sin, reversed the blessing of God from creation. He broke the shalom, the peace of God, the the peace and prosperity of God from creation. Adam's sin was an act of anti-marriage. Adam's sin was an act of anti-family. Adam's sin was an act of anti-life and anti-God. From now on, Adam would be for himself, and Eve would be for herself, and their children, to one of whom would murder the other, would be for themselves. This is the original sin that affects us all. We'll talk more about it next Sunday. But it's all because of Adam's sin. And as his descendants, we are all born in Adam and we all bear Adam's sin nature from the fall. Next comes this deadly confrontation in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I don't want to mischaracterize what's happening here. God will judge and condemn Adam and Eve for their sin, but that's going to be in next week's sermon text. In this section, we might expect God to just break out in fiery wrath upon Adam and Eve. Instead, we see a very measured action on God's part, and I think it's instructive. Before God makes a single declaration, he asks four questions. See, before the fall, we expected that the sound of God's approach would delight Adam and Eve. They lift up their eyes immediately to see Yahweh. They might drop what they're doing and run to him. I remember when, when the boys were little, and I'd come home for work after a long day, and I'd walk through the door, and the boys would drop everything and yell, Daddy, Daddy, and run to me and grab hold of my legs because they're only this tall and give me a great big hug. A little while after that, I would walk through the door and I'd hear Julie say, boys, say hi to your dad. Right? Not only have Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves, but they're hiding from God. They're hiding from the blessing of all blessings that blesses. That sound once brought them joy and now it brings them dread. For the first time ever, they didn't want to be in God's presence. How disorienting that must have been. How disordered that is to not want to be in God's presence. To not want to be seen and acknowledged by God. I don't want you to see me. So they they have this kind of pathetic hiding behind the trees where God sees them anyway. It's a pathetic delusion that we can hide from God. And we all have it. And we all exercise it. 
Adam is experiencing it now. We've experienced it. This unbelief, this trading God's word for my word, it traps us in the delusion that we're, we're somehow unseen by God. When you sin, don't you think somehow God is not seeing it? Don't you somehow think you're behind a tree? We can't go where God's not. The psalmist knows it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I go from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my head my bed in Sheol, you're there. Psalm 139. We, we can't even hide our thoughts from God. How would you like, let's feel like Adam just for a moment. Raise your hand if you'd like for everyone in the congregation to know right now every thought you've ever had. See, that's sort of how Adam feels. Don't look at me, God. Adam wants to hide his sinful thoughts. That's why he's hiding. Of course, God knows everything that has happened. He sees them trying to hide behind the tree, but, but notice the order. God goes after Adam first. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Something's changed, hasn't it? Something's changed. God has not left the man. Man has left God. And so God draws Adam to himself with a question. Adam's not where he's supposed to be. Adam, where are you? Adam knows he's caught. God's direct, he's firm, but he's gentle and his approach is purposeful. You see, he's He's bringing about in Adam the knowledge of his sin. That's a gracious approach to one who has committed treason. God wants us to know we have sinned and that we're sinners. And that's why there is death for us. And Adam answers, I was afraid because I was naked. Now, Adam doesn't admit to his sin, does he? He, he's not contrite in the least. He's, he, he's, he's covered over by his feelings. I felt fear. He only confesses his feeling of fear. Now look at how Adam has changed. He knows he's transgressed God, but he has no thought for God anymore. He just keeps talking about himself. I was afraid consumed by his own feelings, consumed by his own fear and his own shame. And so working from there, God gets more direct to the point, who told you that you were naked? Okay, there's somebody else, and there's somebody else speaking. Adam, who told you that you were naked? Whose words have you been listening to and heeding? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Have you have you abandoned my wisdom and goodness to choose for yourself what's good, Adam? You see, Adam has lost truth and honesty. He can't or won't answer God. He never answers the charge. He's fallen from innocence. He's fallen from righteousness. Here's his chance to repent and tell God he's sorry. Instead, he's focused on justifying himself to God, but he, but he has no justification. He only has pathetic excuses to offer. And it's the same with sinners today. 
They're just excuses. The woman to whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam was responsible for throwing talking snakes out of the garden. That was part of his tending and keeping it. Adam was responsible for protecting Eve from blasphemies against God's word. Adam was responsible to eat from the tree of life and obey God's word, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at the effect of Adam's sin. He simply cannot accept that he's sinned. He can't answer God. He knows someone must be at fault, but it can't be him. That's sin. It must be Eve. There's only two to choose from right now. So Adam blame shifts. And he blames his wife. Remember how elated Adam was to receive Eve when God walked her down the garden path and presented her to him? Remember how he covenanted to care for Eve in a one flesh relationship? Finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We will be one flesh. In sin, Adam threw Eve under the judgment of God for his own sin. I'd have said he threw her under the bus. But that's a pretty big bus. He threw her, knowingly, under the judgment of God on his sin. That's the effect of sin in Adam's heart, and it's been revealed. And it gets worse. Just in case God doesn't accept Adam's rationale that Eve is at fault, he blames God himself for his sin. Now we see the evil of Adam's sin in relation to God. Remember how we were talking about evil in relation to God in the two-tree test? Now we see it. We see the evil of Adam's sin in relation to God because he'll blame God for his own sin. Here's the wisdom of Adam at work. First opportunity he has, God, it's your fault because you gave the woman to me. Adam's disobedience brings the knowledge of evil to his finite capacity. And Adam is now bound to sin, unable to accept blame and ultimately blames God for his fallen status. Could he be any more deluded? Sinners are deluded. It is Adam who brought about the fallen condition of the world that we live in today. The problem of evil rests with man, not with God. And only after confronting Adam, God asks Eve, what is this that you have done? It's as if to ask Eve, Eve, can you confess your sin? Is there any contrition in your heart? And Eve blame shifts too. The serpent deceived me. That's why I ate. I wouldn't have. 
And it's the famous, the devil made me do it excuse, right? But it doesn't fly. Neither Adam nor Eve would accept blame for their sins against God. In their hearts, there's no contrition, only contempt for God. At the end of chapter 2, man was in paradise. Adam and Eve were innocents in the presence of God, bearing his image in obedience to his true word. And by the middle of chapter 3, man has fallen into a, t- into a pit. They rejected God's word, and along with it, the wisdom and the goodness and the presence of God himself. The image of God in them was broken, marred, dim, as they awaited God's judgment. Let me wrap up this way. As a result of the fall of man, we live in a fallen world. And to us, it looks like a one-tree test. Just keep doing what you want to do and don't worry about death or judgment. Nobody does. As a result of Adam's sin, we have inherited his sin nature. We don't think we're wrong. We certainly don't think we're evil. We justify ourselves based on our personally developed standard of good and evil. So there's no surprise when we always pass our own test of goodness. You know, it's only other people who don't live up to my expectations of goodness. I seem to, I seem to always make the bar. But the reality of creation and the truth of God never goes away. Even if you're deluded that it has. Only God's word is the true arbiter of all good and evil. All of life and all of creation exists in relation to God the creator. And in his goodness, he provides a two-tree test for you this morning. The second tree that we're to see this morning is the tree at Calvary. The tree of life will come back, but for now there's, there's the tree of Calvary for you to see. We, we usually call it the cross at Calvary, but the Bible often refers to the cross as the tree on which Jesus died. It's the tree on which Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. This is the gospel word of God. That Jesus came to die for the unrighteous. That if you would choose the goodness of God in Christ, you may have the fruit of forgiveness that comes from his sin-atoning death. That if you would choose the truth of God in Christ, you may have the fruit of life that comes from his resurrection from the dead. See, God the Father is, is drawing sinners to himself. He's revealing your sinfulness to you this morning. And if you can see it, and if you can admit that it's sin, then reach out for life. He's calling sinners to repent of their sins and to have life in Christ. And he's calling you, dear unbeliever, to come and take and eat of the tree of life and live. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it's hard for us to dwell on our sinfulness. It's painful for us to admit how wicked and evil we are in relation to you. And we, we just gasp for, for some air, for some relief. And you've given it to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that the lost may call upon him and be found. And that we who know him would not take him for granted. But that we would serve him. And believe his word. And be witnesses for him, we pray. For Christ's name. Amen.